come before you, thankful for your faithfulness to us, that one day we will see you face to face, but in the meantime, there is a journey ahead of us. And I pray that this message will help us along that path, that we will be motivated and encouraged to to keep pressing on and persevering in the ministry you have for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. But probably the most elite soldier in the world is the Navy SEAL. And, uh, and I've always been fascinated with the, with the Navy SEALs. Part of it is because I could never be one. I tend to, if I find out that there's a movie with a plot line with the Navy SEAL in it, I want to watch it, right? It's, and part of it is just the commitment and the training that it takes to become one. I did a little research, and only 6% of the applicants for SEAL training are accepted. And in a given year, of the 1,000 applicants that are accepted, remember that's only 6% of the total pool, only 250 passed the training. And during the last week of training, the last five and a half days, they go through this exhaustive training regimen where they're forced into running 200 miles. They have to swim, I don't know how long, next to the shore, but it's like 20 miles or some amazing number. They have to run carrying boats. They paddle small boats out to sea. They are doing all of this as they are being berated by shifts of trainers who are questioning their manhood, calling them out, trying to discourage them from finishing the training. And the goal is to drive them to the point of exhaustion. In fact, they only allow for four hours of sleep that entire five and a half day period. And so you can see why only a quarter of the applicants finish the training. Some don't pass because they just can't actually do it. But others, well, they'll go to the, the bell in the center of the compound. And when they decide to opt out, that it's not worth it anymore, they will ring the bell three times. And that's a signal to everybody else that they're done. They went through the process, they went through the application, they went through the training. They knew it was going to be hard, but they didn't know it was going to be that hard. And they reach a point where, at the end of the day, it's just not worth it. And so they ring the bell three times. Much can be said that this is often parallel to, to the Christian life where, yeah, Jesus said it was going to be hard. He said there would be dangers, toils, and, and trouble, but we had no idea it was going to be this hard. And so, well, people ring the bell. Uh, we actually see this as a theme in Second Timothy, don't we? Remember last week, 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. You also, if you also fast forward, you have 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And this is not just in Asia Minor. This is something that Jesus foretold. One of his most famous parables is the parable of the soils. Do you remember that one? I'll just read it to you. Matthew 13, 1 through 9. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since there is no depth of soil. 
But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So it's kind of an interesting, a, a, a quarter, if you were to go by the strict numbers here, are the ones who make it. And when we see the interpretation of the parable later on about the rocky soil, they, they spring up initially like they receive this message with great joy, but Jesus makes it clear that when trials and persecutions and tribulations come, they say, you know, it's not worth it, and they tap the bell three times, and they're out. And so when you look at just the prospect of running this Christian race, there is definitely a, a cost to it. I think about people who are involved in SEAL training, they're kind of told up front it's going to be difficult, right? But they have an inner drive and a desire to finish it because they want that elusive SEAL trident that you get at the end of, of training when you graduate and become an official Navy SEAL. And many people will, will start the journey of the Christian faith, but that doesn't mean that everybody who starts will, will finish. And there are some reasons for this. For one, the prince of power, prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit who dwells in the sons of disobedience, Satan himself, opposes Christ and his people at every turn. There is sustained supernatural opposition. There is also the world, which is trying to gaslight every Christian by trying to convince you that you're crazy, you're missing out, you're the problem, not us, and many people buy into it. And then there's even the internal flesh, residual flesh that we have within us where we're prone to wander, we're prone to doubt, we're prone to, to think that maybe life is better if I were to give up and, and tap out and ring the bell three times. And in this context, we are to make disciples of all nations. Remember, that's the immediate context that we're dealing with in, in 2 Timothy where Paul tells Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a continuation of the Great Commission where we were to go to all nations and make disciples who will in turn make disciples. This is the Great Commission. It seems to be an impossible commission. And so Paul is at the end of his life. He is about to be martyred, and he knows it. And he's making a final appeal to Timothy to stick with it. And he does it with this passage in 2 Timothy 2, 3-7. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is really a, a call to leaders, right? It's, it's Paul, one leader, passing off the baton to another leader. And this leader is to make other leaders. And so there is a special emphasis here where the, the call to full-time vocational ministry is a very difficult row, road to, to, to travel. As I mentioned, 
you have Satan, your own flesh, and you have the world system. Uh, the fact is that leaders are at the vanguard of the assault on Satan's kingdom, so often they're the first to get uh, a blow. Pastoral ministry, vocational ministry, is, is one of those things where you're not qualified for what you do from 9 to 5. What qualifies you is, is what you do with the rest of your time. Doctors can live any way they want as long as they can perform the surgeries, right? Not that way for a pastor. You fall in any area, in any area of your life, a righteous pastor, a repentant pastor will step away from ministry. That is one of the challenges. It's challenging for lay leaders as well. Elders not only have to keep their boss happy as an elder qualification, they also have to make sure that what they teach is, is accurate, knowing that they'll incur stricter judgment. And they will give an account for the souls that they shepherd. When you put yourself out there, there is greater scrutiny. It is more difficult. And some people, like Phygelus and Hermogenes and even Demas, decide that it was just too much and they walked away. They rang the bell three times. And then there's also just the all-around command to make disciples, which is a command to all disciples, right? Which would include you. If you want to feel the full wrath of the world, be serious about ministry and you'll receive it. If you want to know what people really think about Christianity, try sharing your faith and then you'll see it. Those who are fully engaged in ministry and really put themselves out there will feel it. And so what this message is, is this is a, really a call to arms that we are to do what we are called to do, but also a call to perseverance. And, and what Paul does is he gives us three illustrations, three people for you to think about. You, you think about the soldier. You think about the athlete, and you think about the hard-working farmer. And as you do, what Paul is doing is he's, he's resetting the expectations. This is what's expected out of you. This is what you signed up for. See, one of the reasons why people flake away from Christianity is they, they might come to Christ under some false pretense that it's going to be easy, that you'll live your best life now. But Jesus never presents the gospel that way. He never tells people, it's going to be pretty easy for you to follow me. Yeah, your yoke will be easy. I'll carry it with you. But it is a firm, hard call. So you need to raise your expectations about what's expected, but you also need to raise your expectations about the reward. As we go through each of these, you see that there is a payoff for the soldier. His payoff is a commendation. There's a payoff for the athlete, which will be a prize. And there's a payoff for the farmer, which is a harvest. You don't underestimate the, the severity of the calling, but you don't ask, underestimate the, the quality of the reward. You do both of those things together, you will survive. And in the end, you won't ring the bell three times because you'll see that it's worth it. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through these strategies for perseverance to follow through on your commitment to follow Christ. You need to focus your life, play by the rules, and work hard. Okay, focus your life, play by the rules, work hard. It's on the screen behind me, I believe, right? Yep, it's there. You can write it down. Focus your life. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
So Paul, he's laying out a, an example, a soldier. If you live in the Roman Empire, you're very familiar with soldiers, right? The Roman military is a reason why there was an empire to begin with. And so Paul points to the soldiers and says, you are a soldier. You have been enlisted as a soldier in the service of, of Jesus Christ. And part of the calling of a soldier is to do what? You share in suffering. When you sign up to be a soldier, you understand that there will come a point in time when your commanding officer will call you into a situation which will require you to risk and possibly give your life. Year is 1999, and Bob's looking for a way to pay for college. And so he decides he's going to join the ROTC. You just train during the weekday, you sign up for a boot camp one summer, and after four years of college, you will have a job waiting for you as you'll be a commissioned officer. And so it'll be really great for you, look good on a resume, and you get free college. Well, on September 11, 2001, terrorists struck the two towers and the Pentagon and tried to do more. Next thing you know, the nation is at war, and Bob, who is a part of ROTC, is being called to Afghanistan. And he doesn't want to go because he didn't sign up for that. Would you buy that? When you sign up to be a soldier, what, what's the expectation? There's a story of a conversation between the French Supreme Allied Commander Ferdinand Foch, and this was during World War II, and, and one of his officers. And Foch told the officer, you must not retire, you must hold on at all cost. The officer responded, but if we do that, we're all going to die. Foch responded with, precisely. When you're a soldier, that's what you signed up for. When Jesus says, come and die as a soldier in my service, that's what you've signed up for. That is the high cost of following Christ, and it does mean you'll meet opposition. And Paul knows something about opposition, doesn't he? Part of it was because he was the opposition. Before he came to Christ, there was no more savage enemy of Christ and his church than Paul. He not only helped facilitate the execution of Stephen, he would go from house to house and find these house churches and he would rip away the men and the women, right? He was an equal opportunity guy. When he found out that this heretical sect was starting to make inroads in Damascus, and he knew that once it got to Damascus, because of its location, it could go to the ends of the earth, he decided he was going to put a stop to it, and so he got letters from the high priest to give him permission to raid more houses and stop this from becoming an international movement. And while he is on the road to Damascus, a miracle took place. Acts 9, 15 through 16, he was knocked to the ground, and the Lord said to him, knocked him to the ground, appeared to him, and said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking in against the goads? Who are you, Lord? It is the Lord Jesus who you're persecuting. And then he had poor Ananias, who was supposed to go and welcome him into the church. And he knew about Saul's reputation. But he's told by the Lord in Acts 9, 
9, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right? It's a call to be a soldier. It's a call to suffer. Paul, when he defends his ministry in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 28, he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's almost embarrassed that he has to even bring this up. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was, I'll just insert here, pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Talk about a nightmare. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. I mean, that is the degree of suffering. And you think, well, that's just Paul. He had a unique calling on his life to suffer. But he tells everyone in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, the expectation all Christians should have is, while you may have more joy in this life, your life is not necessarily going to be more enjoyable. When you swim against the current of the world, you can expect to be exhausted. There is a self-denial that is required when you decide that you are going to be a soldier. And part of being a soldier is making yourself available to immediately obey the commands of your commanding officer. You need to be focused. Verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. No soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, civilian pursuits. Now, the Roman code of Theodosius said, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. When you're a soldier, your job is to be a soldier. You're not to get other jobs. You don't go to Afghanistan with the U.S. military and decide that you're going to start an export business of carpets. Right? You don't buy and sell from the Taliban as you're assaulting the Taliban. You have one job, which is to be at the immediate disposal of your commanding officer. And in this case, it would be Jesus. And so we, we hear this, and there can often be a little bit of uh, what I call whataboutism. Well, does this mean I can't work a secular job? What about taking a vacation? What if I want to be involved in the community? I mean, do I just do the church, be a monk, do nothing else? Well, I think there's a there's a term that helps clarify things. The key word here is entangled. Entangled. And it means just what it says. Like when somebody is tangled in something, right? they're kind of bound up with, with string. You go 
fishing with your four-year-old. It's been said that you can take your kids fishing or you can fish. You can't do both. But you try. You cast the line. You give it to your four-year-old and say, hold on right there. Daddy's going to catch a bass. And so you go and you, you start casting. And then you hook something. You think this is going to be a great father-son moment. Johnny, come over here. Dad's got a bass on the line. I can't move, Dad. You get over here. I can't move. And you turn around and he can't move. Little Johnny looks like he wrapped himself in a fishing line cocoon, right? <laughs> he's entangled. And because he's entangled, even if he wanted to, he can't get to you. Right? And that's the idea here is that the civilian affairs have so entangled the Christian that he cannot respond or she cannot respond to their commanding officer. And so when I look at, um, let's say my own life, and I'm in vocational ministry, and so it's different for me. But part of the reason why I am paid for ministry is so that I'm not entangled in anything else. And so I may have a job, opportunity to get another job, but I purposely don't do that because I want to be free to pursue any ministry that the Lord has given me. Same thing with my wife. We try to simplify our lives. We reduce the amount of, of hobbies and everything because we want to be immediately available to minister to the needs of the church and the community to be at the service of the king. Now, that's me because I'm in full-time ministry. And any young men that are entering full-time ministry, I would tell them the same thing. Simplify your life. Simplify your life. Avoid entanglements. Now, <clears throat> when you get into, let's say, uh, the rest of you, obviously there are some entanglements that you have, right? You need a job, for instance. But your job can be an entanglement. Do you have a job that forces you to work on Sundays? That might be an entanglement. Perhaps you should consider prayerfully getting a new job a different secular job that gives you more freedom to be a part of the church body and doing ministry well what about taking a vacation well a wise general knows that even the best soldiers need a little r&r now we have a world that kind of lives for vacations right that's their heaven on earth is what they live for vacations are to serve a purpose. I like the term recreation. Recreation. When you recreate, you are recreating yourself. I mean, there are times where all of us need to gain perspective on life and on ministry, and taking a vacation is a gift from the Lord that helps refresh us. I know uh, when I do a funeral, Becca can testify to this, when I'm done doing a funeral, I'm done. Right? It's emotionally exhausting. My, uh, my brain is in a semi-vegetative state. And so for me, the most relaxing thing to do would be to watch a Jayhawk basketball game against southeastern Texas Juco, right? where I know they're going to win. <laughs> love it. I love the blowouts. But you know, something like that is a way of giving my brain a rest so that I can refocus and do more ministry later on. And so if the vacation interferes with ministry, then that's a different story, isn't it? There is a place for rest and relaxation as long as it serves the greater purpose. 
you look at community involvement. Community involvement, by all means, be involved in the community as long as it doesn't take hold and control of your life. For example, if you kind of know my history, I moved five times before I graduated from high school, but I spent a chunk of my childhood in, in Boise, Idaho. And while I was there in the third grade, I befriended a, someone by the name of Mark, and we became friends and went over to his house, and Mark had born-again Christian parents who radically converted when Mark was born because he was born premature. They prayed to God and they said, we'll be your servants if you save his life. Obviously, his life was saved. And, and these, I mean, these were Christian television-watching Christians. I mean, they were all in. They would actually put their hands on the TV screen when they prayed. And I was really intrigued by that. I'd never been around real Christians like that before. And as I got to know him, he eventually went from public school where we met to Christian school to being homeschooled. Uh, they were the first ones to kind of share the gospel with me. And at the end of sixth grade, I moved away. And then eventually, I became a Christian while at the University of Kansas. And my parents, in the middle of my time at KU, moved back to Idaho. And so I'm going back to the place where I grew up. And I'm trying to think, who are the Christians that I know? And I remembered Mark and his family. And so I am really excited about reconnecting with them and sharing with them all that the Lord has done in my life. So I reconnect with Mark, and I remember it was kind of a... They didn't seem to be that excited that I was a Christian. In fact, I found out that they weren't even going to church anymore. Because they got involved in homeschool advocacy. His dad actually became a state representative, and they're writing bills, lobbying, working with legislators, and, and they were doing a, a good thing, but what it did was it cannibalized their commitment to Christ and the local church. Do, do you see the danger? They are allowing what was good to entangle them. Another source of entanglement might be a relationship. Perhaps you're, you have a special someone in your life who is not a Christian. And you might say, well, maybe at some point in time they, they'll become Christians. They're, they're pre-Christians, and I don't want to you know, corrupt that at all. And, and so you have this meaningful relationship where you don't have the freedom to see other people because you're kind of an item, and they can kind of steer and control your life. There might be a deep friendship with someone where you feel like you can't say, you can't say no to them, and so you find yourself saying no to the church more often. Or, or, or perhaps it could be even your parents. One of the great obstacles for aspiring missionaries is the resistance that they will get from their parents who don't want their babies and grandbabies to live on another continent. And so... All of these are good things, so, so do you just kind of walk away from that? Do you just walk away from, let's say, a real business opportunity that can be used to really help your family to be financially secure and, and naturally give a lot of money to the church? Well, this is what Jesus says when he talks about divided loyalty. Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, you would think that Jesus would say, great, fantastic, friend, come join us. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that's a good excuse, isn't it? I've got a funeral. There's family obligations that I have. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Reasonable request. Can't I just have a farewell party? And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, that's Jesus speaking. He's the commanding officer. He makes it very clear that there has to be a focused life of undivided loyalty. And this is really not necessarily a call to monasticism. It's a call to make sure that every area of your life is focused on Christ in some way. So you look at the, the tension that some people in ministry feel between raising their kids and raising their family, maintaining their marriage, and, and still being active in the church and ministry. And this is what I would say. Instead of posing these two artificially against each other, make the church the family business. Make the church the family business. Uh, you, you, you have a job. And you think, oh man, it's not a real job because it's, it's secular in nature. Well, remember who your employer is. You are working for the Lord, not men. There are ways you can worship the Lord by evangelistic witness, by being productive for the kingdom. God is honored when we work for the Lord as, as our true boss. See, every area of our life can be devoted and consecrated to the Lord, but it's being very intentional about how does this lead to the service of Christ and if one of those activities begins to entangle you, either pull you away from your walk with the Lord or pull you away from the church community or pull you away from the mission that God has given you, then you snap the line and disentangle yourself from it. You focus your life. You focus your life. Secondly, what you also need to do, but, <clears throat> but you have to look at it this way too. It's not all sacrifice. It's not all sacrifice. This is what's expected of you when you sign up for service. But look at verse 4 again. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And did you know that there will be a future point in time where those who are faithful soldiers will receive verbal commendation from Jesus. One of my favorite passages that keep me going is when, when Paul talks about a future judgment on him. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You fought well, my soldier. Might even give you a medal. I don't know. But it's not just the medal we go for, the commendation. There's also the crown. You see that there is another analogy, the athlete, which calls us to play by the rules. Look at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, Paul 
uses one of his favorite illustrations, with his, which is athletics. I half wonder if he is some sort of a sports fan, but at the very least, he knew that this was part of a, the cultural conversation. And there were two major games in the empire at that time, including the Olympics. Now, to be an Olympic athlete, it was required that you took an oath that you fulfilled 10 months of required training. The reason being is if you didn't do the 10 months of training, there'd be no way you can compete and you'd actually lower the bar or the standard of the athletic contest. It was also told that if you were to cheat, like take a shortcut or do some illegal move, you weren't just disqualified, they'd actually beat you and flog you, right? That would make a very interesting Olympics if somebody got caught for doping and got hauled off, right? And he uses this to say that if you sign up for the contest, right? If you sign up to run a marathon, you need to expect that you'll run all 26.2 miles. You don't cheat and take a shortcut. Now, the year was 1979, and during the running of the New York Marathon, 26-year-old Rosie Ruiz placed 11th with a time of two hours and 56 minutes. Great time. But she surpassed that time in 1980 when she ran the Boston Marathon, and she almost didn't get there. You see, she turned in her application for the New York Marathon late but she was given a special dispensation when she explained that she had terminal brain cancer and was dying. So in spite of the brain cancer, she ran two hours and 56 minute marathon time. Well, fast forward to the Boston Marathon and Rosie Ruiz emerged out of nowhere and won the Boston Marathon for the women with a time 25 minutes faster, a time of 2.31. It was the third fastest women's marathon time in the world. And so she shocked the world, was given the winner's wreath, and was interviewed by journalists about how she trained, and, and she was asked what kind of interval she did, and, and she said, what's an interval? people began to have their suspicions because none of the other competitors saw her at any of the checkpoints. They did some research, and apparently a journalist met her on the subway during the New York Marathon. Putting it all together, what Rosie Ruiz did was she emerged out of the crowds without a mile to go and ran the race and got the victor's crown. And she was summarily shamed. Because she didn't run the full course. You see, if you enter a contest, you agree to play by the rules. You agree not to take a shortcut. And frankly, in times of persecution and hardship, it's kind of tempting to take a shortcut. It was for Peter, wasn't it? Now, here he is, watching his master be grilled by a kangaroo court, and a servant girl recognizes him and says, aren't you with him? And he knows if he says yes, he might be put on trial too. So he takes a shortcut. What does he do? He lies. He lies. He lies to get out of trouble. 
you might be in some financial straits. You're not sure how to make it. And so you take a shortcut by not giving or perhaps pilfering from somebody else. But you're not pilfering. You're just going to borrow money from your company and then pay it back later once you get your break. Or perhaps you're in a marriage that is very difficult and unsatisfying and a source of friction and misery for your life. And even though there's no cases of abuse and no cases of adultery, you decide to end it on your own terms to shortcut the marriage. In pastoral ministry, you have men who will take shortcuts. They'll borrow a sermon from others. They'll preach John MacArthur's stuff. But all of these are people who take shortcuts. I remember my, one of my most esteemed and feared seminary professors was asked, in your experience, who makes it in ministry and who doesn't? And he had an immediate answer. Those who complain about the work don't make it. Those who complain about the work don't make it. It's so hard. How am I going to finish this? You're expecting too much out of me. They don't make it. When you sign up to run the race, you sign up to finish the race without taking any shortcuts. And those who do finish the race, what's expected? An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. But they are crowned if they do. 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. That crown... That ceremony will make it all worth it in the end. That's the second analogy, the athlete. The third one is you work hard, verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have his first share of the crops. Now, this is an analogy all of us can relate to, especially you farmers who harvest grain in an air-conditioned cab. Not judging you. I don't do it. Still hard work, right? But it was harder back then. We can agree to that, right? It was harder back then. The rich farmers would have a team of oxen and they would plow the field to to break up the sod and then they'd go back and they would scatter all the seed and then they'd take the same team of oxen and they would plow it again to cover the seeds. They would weed it by hand as they did not have the benefit of chemicals. They would have to watch it grow and then when they harvest it, they didn't use a combine, they used a sickle in their own hands. And then once they harvested the the stalks of wheat, they would have to thresh them and then transport them and then grind them. And that's just for wheat. You look at livestock, it was a different process. You look at grapes, it was a different process. You look at olives, it was a different process. It was, it was hard, taxing work. So hard that if the Lord didn't command them to take a day off, they probably wouldn't have taken it. It was a hard-working farmer, but in the end, there would be a payoff. And he uses the term hardworking, toilsome. It's one of Paul's analogies, when he, one of his favorite words when he talks about ministry. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. When he's talking about toil, we're talking full effects of the curse sweating, grinding, going to bed exhausted every single night. 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive. Ministry, in any form, is toilsome work because you don't have guaranteed results. 
It's not like you can see how many bushels you harvested from this acre and say it was a good year. Sometimes, depending on the context or the ministry, if you are ministering in, let's say, Western Europe or deep in the 1040 window, you may not see a convert for a decade. And yet you are still sowing and seeking to reap. It is a difficult taxing ministry, but at the end, there is a reward of hard work. And there's a little bit of debate, like what is the reward he's talking about here? Is it financial remuneration? Well, probably not. It's all of the, the crown and the, um, yeah, the crown, oh, what was the other one? Oh, and the commendation, all of those are future in nature. And that's probably the case here. Uh, now, it might be that the, the harvest is just sharing heaven with the people who you loved and labored for. Paul says in Philippians 4, 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, that there is some sort of future harvest and some sort of future reward where at the end of it, you'll say it's all worth it. And so Paul talks about the hardworking farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. And then he finishes up with, think over what I say, verse 7, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He basically tells Timothy, keep thinking about this. Let this rattle around in your brain. I have a seminary professor who gave us all kinds of wise advice, like better is a live dog than a, than a dead lion. I know that's Ecclesiastes, but how he applied it to ministry, there's always these little kernels of truth that are always rattling around in my head. And every once in a while, I think that's what he was talking about. And so what Timothy is to do is he's to stew on these analogies. When you're awake at night wondering if it's all worth it, you think about the soldier, you think about the athlete, you think about the farmer. When you are wondering whether or not you should really go through with this confrontation with someone or try to purge the church of these heretics, you think about what a soldier is called to do. When you think about ringing the bell three times saying, I'm done with ministry, you think about those things. And you not only think about how there is a need to follow through on these high expectations, but the reward to follow. And ultimately what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to motivate Timothy to finish the race just like Paul did. This is really a call to, to perseverance. So call to perseverance is to finish the training and the ministry and the work and the calling that you started. And this kind of brings up the issue, well, well, what happened to those people who didn't persevere? What, what did happen to Demas? Well, Paul teaches about this reality in the book of Colossians. In Colossians 1, 21 through 23, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right? Sweet, wonderful promise of salvation. And then he says this in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, if you're going to get these precious promises, you have to keep the faith. You can't declare yourself an atheist, leave your wife, 
for another woman, plunge yourself into all kinds of immorality, then go into a grocery store, shoot all the customers, and then kill yourself and expect to be in heaven. Fair enough? You have to keep the faith. Faith is not a one-time act. It's something that we continue in. We continue in our faith. J.C. Ryle, the esteemed pastor of years gone by, says this, We became Christians by faith. We became Christians by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. We grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. The common element is faith, faith, faith. And so what do we make of Demas? 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Right? Those who leave were never of the faith to begin with. But we also have a precious promise that those who have faith are protected by the Lord. Romans 8, 38-39, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our faith in that reality is what's going to keep us anchored in the end. So yes, when Jesus calls us to follow him, it is a hard call. It's a call to share in the sufferings as a soldier, right? To lay down your life, to focus your life, to be totally dedicated and committed to his service. It is a call to run a race, a long race of that, one that you must finish. It is a call to work hard and toil, swimming upstream by making disciples of a world in the world that is opposed to us. But that's not the only thing we should expect, is it? What we should also expect is at the end of our days, when we see our commanding officer, there is a prospect of receiving a commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. There is the, the prospect of when we finish the race, the king of kings will crown us with the crown of eternal life, the crown of victory. And then as we toil and labor building the kingdom, there is a promise that in the end, there will be the fruit of the harvest waiting for us to enjoy. And when we think about that, when we think about ringing that bell three times and tapping out, you think about these things. You think about what you signed up for. And you think about the promised blessings that are there for us when we continue. And at that glorious time, at that glorious day, as we're in heaven looking around, checking out the scenery, we'll think, you know what? It was worth it. It was worth it. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am thankful for just the promises given to us that at the end of the day, it'll all be worth it. And I pray for anyone here who might have a case of mission drift who... Perhaps they are being entangled by the world that they will free themselves from it. I pray for anyone who might be tempted to cheat that they'll realize that it's not worth losing the crown. And I pray for anybody who is tired that they will continue to, to labor knowing that it's all worth it in the end. Lord, we can't do this on our own. It's only by the Holy Spirit. It's only because of the work of Jesus Christ and changing our hearts through the gospel, 
that we even have a hope. But we thank you that you don't call us to do this alone, but that you will strengthen us in the effort. Help us to believe in these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.